Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us to be able to open your word and to be able to study it uh, as a body together with brothers and sisters that we might be able to learn, we might be able to challenge one another, we might be able to take this and then um, go out into the world and act it out and live it out and demonstrate the love of Christ and what it means to be followers of Jesus. We pray that we would be better equipped after our Sunday school class today to know what that means. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm going to invite you to grab your copies, uh, whether it's your pocket edition or uh, using the uh, Trinity hymnal, somewhere around page 870-ish, because we are in question 24 today. So if you want to find that, question 24. Now, by way of reminder... I'm going to read question 23 from last week because that set the stage for what we're going to do over the next few weeks. So you might remember question 23 was what offices, plural, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? In other words, he is our Redeemer that was established in previous questions, but what does he do as our Redeemer? Well, he fills these three offices. And so the answer was Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation. Exaltation. Remember, state of humiliation is here, his earthly ministry. His exaltation is after his, uh, um, not just after his resurrection, but after his ascension. And it tells us that even then he continues being office, uh, fulfilling those offices of prophet, priest, and king. Those are not just things he did in his earthly ministry. And what we saw last week is that these three offices are part of what it means to be human. Being made in the image of God means that we are to be prophet, priest, and king. And so when you think about what Jesus' ministry was in terms of a redemption, ultimately it was his fulfilling what we did not and could not do then, of course, he would fulfill the offices of prophet, priest, and king, and he does so in a way that is unmatched by anyone in history and ever will be, too. So that's what we kind of were setting the stage for over the last few weeks. What we're going to do now in questions 24 and following is we're going to take a deep dive into each one of those offices. So today we'll do the office of a prophet. So can we have somebody read question and answer 24? All right, thank you so much. Okay, so you see there very clearly that it tells us that he executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us, and here's the key, by his word and spirit. Remember, you see all those commas in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and again, I'm just trying to train you on the use of those commas. We don't normally write that way anymore. They actually did not write that way even then. This is being used to cut, they didn't have a way of highlighting phrases. And so this is their way. If if they were to write this today, they would color code it. And they'd say this phrase, this phrase, this phrase. So each one has something to add. So he reveals to us by his word and spirit. Very key. So let me just look at some of these passages that talk about uh, the fact that that Jesus, and we already kind of touched on this when we looked at all three offices last week. But let's look at a couple of passages or three. Let's have someone look up John 1.18. One of the most significant passages in Scripture that very often gets ignored in chapter 1 of John with so many other things that are going on in, one, in chapter 1 of John. So we're going to look up John 1.18. 
1 Corinthians 2.13, and finally 2 Timothy 3.15. We might read that one in context, so you might have to do a little more than just that. Okay, so let's take a look at this first part that Jesus, as a prophet, reveals to us. Remember, we said that's what a prophet's job is, is to take God's word and reveal it. It's not foretelling the future, although if that's what God wants to reveal, then he'll reveal that. So who can read John 1.18, please? All right, thank you, Beth. So one of the most important passages, everybody knows John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it goes on to say that nothing was made apart from Christ. And then that famous you know, verse in uh, verse 14 that talks about the incarnation, And the word became flesh, and he dwelt, he tabernacled amongst us. And we get sometimes so hung up on that that we don't keep reading and get to verse 18, where it tells us what was so significant about the incarnation. Because it says you can have no fruition of God. There is no connection, there is no way for us to know God unless God chooses to reveal himself. That's an important point. It's actually made elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, So it's not just in the incarnation, but even in the garden. Adam would have walked around and just, what's going on? You know, God always must reveal himself to us so that we can have understanding. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 makes clear, we're not going to look that up, but uh, makes clear that there are many, many things that we don't know, the secret things of God that it refers to. But those things which are revealed, it says, are for us to know. In other words, this gives us confidence. When you pick up your Bible and you say, well, I can't understand that it's meant to be a mystery. No, it's not. Everything here can be understood. Uh, and that's why you know, we have teachers. That's why we study the Bible ourselves. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means in just a moment as we unpack this question about why you can read the Bible on your own and so on and come to an understanding. It has to do with this right here. Uh, But the point simply being is everything that's revealed is meant to be understood. So God does not reveal to us everything. We would be incapable of comprehending everything because he's infinite and we're finite. So there's just that limitation right from the very get-go, the creator-creature distinction that will never change. But what he has revealed is meant for you to grab a hold of and to be able to understand the point is, you can't grab that information. God has to reveal it to us. And it shows just how central the prophetic office is. There is no way of actually understanding and under, uh, comprehending anything about God. Even in our um, uh, pre-fall state is the point. But what it tells us then in John 1.18 is that the son, and, and by the way, what Beth read is, uh, did you read the ESV perchance? It's not the ESV, but it was very close. It might be the King James, might be, uh, you know, uh, no, it won't be the King James because I think that's the one that made the change. One of them, the King James, certainly the new King James, uh, adds the only begotten. Anybody have the ESV there just at hand? Okay, thank you. That is what I was listening for. No one has ever seen God, the only God, which, yes, you were probably reading the King James or the, or the new King James, and the, changes that to the only begotten son. Um, and it says some early manuscripts say that. My guess is the ESV and most other modern Bibles, if anybody has the NIV or the NAS, I'm pretty sure it'll be uh, the only God, only begotten God or something like that, not Son, 
I think son is probably, you know, some monk looked at that and said, well, he's talking about the son, and to, how can God reveal God? I'll just write son in. And, you know, that's one of the problems with the so-called Texas Receptus, but that's a story for another day. The received text that's behind the King James and why it had to be superseded. But anyhow, um, it's very clearly, one way or the other, it's clearly talking about this is God who took on flesh and he reveals God to us. And that's the point. Without Jesus as the ultimate revealer, we could not really understand God. And that's why when Jesus tells his disciples, you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It is this idea that Jesus in his very existence is the revelation of God. Not just simply what he says. When Isaiah or Jeremiah spoke under the inspiration of the Spirit, they were revealing God's words. Jesus reveals God himself. Does that, you see that? In what he said and what he did and the way he looked, in his actions, his mannerisms, this is one of the reasons why Reformed people object looking at the second commandment. We, we object to even uh, having James Cavaziel play you know, Jesus in the Passion or something. I was just, just so happened I didn't do it because of this. I just was flipping through Quora or whatever, you know, that on-site website where they, you, they ask you questions and you have to answer and they're dumb questions. Many times, not always. Um, so I'm on there always answering um, questions about English. I don't know why. We get a lot of people saying, you know, which, how do you say this? And they're usually, you know, people for whom English is a second language. But there's also other kind of questions that pop up on my timeline or whatever you call it. And so there was a question there about the passion, you know, Mel Gibson's movie. And they were talking about how James Cavaziel became Jesus. I mean, literally took on you know, he, he entered into method acting, he entered into the role so that one other actor looked at him and said, I was not looking at the eyes of James, I was looking at Jesus. The, the point simply being is, we don't know. God has not chosen to reveal, oh, it's one of those secret things, you know, in that regard. Reveal to us in writing what Jesus, you know, we get some things like he looked at Peter and you can just tell that penetrating glass when he looks right at Peter as Peter um, denies him the third time you, and, and it literally says the rooster crowed and he looked and Jesus was standing there hands shackled you know wearing the the, 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 the thorn the, the, the crown of thorns and all that stuff with the purple robe around him the guards around him he had just come out of out of the um, uh, high priest's home and he turns and looks at him that withering gaze revealed something that you can't capture on film because we don't know what we're capturing see so anyway, we'll leave it there. But let's keep going. Um, so then Jesus reveals, but he reveals by his word and spirit. So let's have somebody read 1 Corinthians 2.13. All right, so there, just a simple reminder. We won't spend as much time on this one. Simply just reminding it is the spirit that does the work. And so when we talk about Jesus even now executing his role of offices and priests, he does through he does so through his spirit. We'll talk about more of that in just a moment. What the implications of that are, that it is the spirit of Christ that continues talking to us. Um, and ultimately, this is all for our salvation. Second Timothy three fifteen. Somebody read that. All right. So it is through the Scripture, and we're going to spend some time talking about that. It's through the Scripture that um, that you have what is necessary for salvation, that revelation in scripture. So just some, some basic points showing that the catechism question is not off base. So let's take a step back and then talk about what does it mean that God reveals himself through a prophet 
And, um, you know, when we look at something, uh, I'll go ahead and just read this now, but when you look at something like Ephesians 2.20, that says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the, the chief cornerstone. So we have this idea of, it, Paul is making the, uh, the analogy that the church is like a building and the foundation is the prophets and the apostles. But Christ being at the very corner, the cornerstone being the one piece that holds it all together. You know, we might say the center, that kind of thing. Um, why are the apostles and prophets the foundation? They're the foundation because God has revealed himself through them. And so that's an important point for us to pick up is that the, let's take the Old Testament prophets. They were indeed authorized by God to speak his word. Everything that they said, everything that they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was in fact the very word of God. It wasn't their words. It wasn't their best guess. It wasn't, you know, what um, um, the liberals today just want to sit there and say that they were, if they want to say anything, that they were ecstatic utterances, that they were taken up into, you know, much like any other religion that gets into some kind of mysticism or whatever. No, it was God speaking and what they wrote, each in their own uh, dialect and their own voice and so on, still is God's very word. But it makes it very clear in Scripture that it wasn't through their own power. That's the point I'm trying to get at here. Um, let's have somebody look up First Peter 1.11. 1 Peter 1.11, let's read that. Okay, I probably should have asked you to read the previous verse because who is it that's inquiring? It's the Old Testament um, prophets. So the spirit of Christ which was in them. See, that's an important point. These are the Old Testament prophets and yet it's the spirit of Christ that's in them. Just want to be able to see that from the very beginning that the uh, that the, the, the Holy Spirit is at work, but he's called the Spirit of Christ as the revealer and so on. So it's not their own power that is driving them. It's not that these guys were so wise or like some commentaries I've read in Isaiah that can't grasp that Isaiah is written in the 8th century B.C. and then he predicts the soon-to-come uh, Assyrian attack uh, that's going to take out northern Israel then he predicts a much later on Babylonian attack that would take out the southern part of Israel called Judah. And then, of course, he goes on to predict the coming of the Messiah with such detail. And then ultimately, uh, he jumps forward and talks about the, the restoration of all things in the eschaton in the last day. All that's in the book of Isaiah. It's all compressed. It's called prophetic compression. We'll talk about that some other time. The idea that the book doesn't tell you, and then this, you know, 300 years will happen, and then, you know, it just puts it all in one uh, straight shot. But that said, our, you know, liberal minds in the, in the uh, 19th century, uh, late 1800s, up through, you know, today, their heads exploded. It's impossible. Of course, you know, nobody can foretell the future to that level of, so... Uh, their whole view, of course, is that uh, Isaiah was written by three different authors at each stage. As, as the things happened, they wrote it in the voice of a man who lived, you know, in the past. Yeah, yeah whatever. Um, so this is how, you know, they try to deal with it. But no, very clearly here, Peter is saying they were able, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to foretell the sufferings of Christ in that level of detail uh, because God was, uh, Christ was revealing himself through them. Uh, why? Because Christ, I'll read this myself from Colossians 2, 3. 
It says that hidden in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He knows it all, so he is the one who's able to reveal whatever he chooses to reveal. So we get the picture there. Yes, Old Testament prophets and the apostles and so on all really did speak the true word of God. It does, there's no red-letter Bible. This is one of the reasons why you, you, know, you should just scrub out the red letters from your Bible. There's no words that are holier. Well, these are the words of Jesus. The minute you say that, you are disparaging every time that he spoke through his, the spirit of Christ spoke through these prophets. Every word is the word of Christ. So if they want to put the words of Christ in red, they just might as well print the whole thing in red. Okay, that's an important point. It's not minor. You're thinking, oh, that's so clever. The pastor said it's so cute. No, it's absolutely essential to understanding the role of scripture. And that's an important thing because of where we are today. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Well, you know, Peter calls it the spirit, uh, calls it, calls him the spirit of Christ in the passage which we just read here in uh, 1 Peter 1, 11. There's a few other uses of that. It's not the most common use, but we do see it there. And then he himself says in John 14, 26, and he repeats himself in John 15, 26, both verses 26, 14 and 15, easy to remember, that he is the one who is sending the, the spirit. The, so the Spirit is the one who enables and equips. Sometime we'll have to talk about the Spirit and um, maybe do a mini, mini theological study of the Spirit because he's so misunderstood. And in our, just like our overreaction to Roman Catholicism with Mary, 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 Mary. Oh, we can't ever talk about Mary now because they've ruined it for everybody. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Pentecostals are out there, you know, ah, the Spirit, ah, and they go running around and they bump into each other and they fall on the floor and they bark like dogs. And, you know, so now, now we can't talk about the Spirit. No, yes, we can. So, sorry, little rant had nothing to do with what you asked. We'll have to spend some time looking at the Spirit uh, and, and you'll find some amazing things. Like the Spirit is at work ultimately animating every human being. That's right. Even LeBron James or... Madonna, when she goes twerking and all that, at 60-something years of age, you saw her doing that. Uh, Hopefully you didn't. It was in the news. I don't go looking for that stuff. I guarantee you. But there it was. It opened up the tablet and... So we'll talk about that some other time. But yes, the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. Short answer. Uh, So the point simply being in the Old Testament, God speaks very clearly through these men. Uh, it It is fully inspired when you get to the apostles, see, the, the Old Testament was the, the testament of promise. It's, it's, it's looking forward. This is going to happen. The New Testament is the testament of fulfillment. It's all fulfilled. And so you might say, well, if it's all fulfilled, why do we have apostles? What is the need for them? And there is where we get to this intermediate period where there is uh, um, uh, Jesus doing his thing. And then there are these men who are writing about what he did. And so... That has to be put, you know, there, there, there's going to be this period of some, you know, 40 to, to 60 years roughly in which it's being inscripturated. They're talking about what Jesus did. So, yes, the New Testament is uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the testament of fulfillment. Um, but what's happening is that they are writing about the finished work of Christ. They're putting it so that we have it. Does that make sense? So there's this short period again in which there still is revelation through the apostles, but it's only until the word gets inscripturated. Uh, we can spend a lot of time there, we won't, but that's our answer to people who sit there and say the charismatic gifts continue today and so on, and we'll, we'll see why that's the case uh, more clearly in just a moment. Um, 
Yeah, something that I copied from G.I. Williamson where he says, the prophets foretold what Christ would do, the apostles recorded what Christ did do. And I think that's a good way of putting it. And once that was um, completed, there was no longer need for continuing revelation. So whenever you hear about people talking about, I have a you know, word of the Spirit and all that, no, you don't. Uh, you just, you know, like Scrooge, that's just a bit of cheese or something uh, that's in there. Okay, some of you get that, some of you, yeah, we'll talk later. Yes, Marla. Yeah, the idea that even the visions, not only does Christ reveal himself, but he's the one who explains and enables us to understand and to grasp that. Yeah, absolutely. So let me take a moment here to say, if you want to look at one uh, marker, a litmus test, whatever you want to call it, that helps us to see uh, what drives a lot of false religions, it is this point exactly here. And it's the idea that the scripture is, where did I put my Bible? The scripture is sufficient. You know, you, uh, if you go through our newcomers class, you know we talk about some of the characteristics of scripture. One is that it's necessary, but it's also sufficient. And, you know, if you've ever taken logic, you know that those are two conditions that you can use, right? So making a cake, flour or eggs or whatever is necessary, but it's not sufficient, right? You need other things. You can't just make a cake with eggs or just with flour. You need other things in there. Um, But then there are some other things that you do where something is sufficient. That's all you need. And so Scripture is both necessary and sufficient, the revelation ends with Jesus. Jesus is that final revelation. Uh, and like I said, we can, we can really pound that. Uh, that would be a whole Sunday school class or two. But the point is you can look at all these different religions that then go on, uh, or false, even if they're claiming to be Christian, false sects, whatever we want to call them, uh, or problematic, and they will always have something in addition to the scripture. Um, let's take the Roman Catholic Church as a perfect uh, example. In the Roman church, it is the Bible and, anybody know, you've been, have you been in those churches? Tradition. tradition. Now tradition in uh, uh, the Roman church as well as in some of the Protestant churches that have gone liberal who have just adopted the exact same language. Tradition is not like, oh, we have a Christmas tradition, you know, we all light the candles. They don't mean that. They mean past teachers. And any one of us would say, well, look, past teachers have a lot to teach us. Uh, We listen, we read what Martin Luther wrote or what John Calvin wrote or Jonathan Edwards, right? We look at what they did as insofar as they were teaching us the scripture. And we sit there and say, you know, let's learn from these teachers. Just because they're dead doesn't mean that we can't learn from them. We'll talk about the role of teachers in just a moment. Uh, Because if this is all sufficient, what's the role of teachers? We'll get to that in just a moment. But in the Roman church, and increasingly in liberal churches that do talk about tradition, the idea of tradition is uh, not just the past, but the continuing speaking authoritatively on the same level of an inspiration of Scripture as the Bible. And that's a problem. So we all know, of course, with, with the Pope, the idea that the Pope himself speaks infallibly. Uh, not does, they, they have couched that a bit, it does not mean that, you know, if he goes around and he stubs his toe and he says in Latin, you know, some word that we can't repeat here, uh, that that is an infallible utterance. Only when he speaks, they've, they've defined it when he speaks ex cathedra, which means when he speaks on his throne. And um, in other words, he, it's like all of a sudden he says, what I'm about to say now is official pronouncement. 
however they want to work that. And behind that, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment and unpack it, is the idea of the doctrine of apostolic succession. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it's this idea that the apostles continue. This is why we have to go back and look at the role of the apostles. Why were they there in that New Testament period? Because they were recording, they were recording what Christ had done. Once they had recorded that, there was no need for ongoing apostles. You can see Paul speaking to that in the, in the so-called pastoral letters, pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, where he's addressing pastors and he's telling them, we're passing from the scene and the ordinary means of grace through pastors, deacons, and elders, that's going to become the norm from now on because he recognized our time is ending and scripturation will be soon complete, we're done, that kind of thing. But in the apostolic succession, the idea that Peter was the first pope and then by his laying on of hands, he passed on his mantle to the next person and so it continues on down to Pope Francis today. That's the claim. And the interesting thing is that many of the liberal Protestant denominations, Lutheran, Methodist, uh, Anglican, and so on, have a form now of apostolic succession. They hold to that. And it's the idea that when I lay hands as the bishop on this next person, I am empowering him to continue that same role. Now, there's some truth to that because Paul does talk about uh, laying on of hands by the council of elders. Some translations have that. Some translations literally have the word that's in there, presbytery. Um, The elders gather together. So there is something for the ordination of men and so on. We're not arguing against that. But it's the idea that when I do that and I come in as a bishop and I lay hands, and by the way, it's one bishop. It's not a multiple of bishops and lay hands, that I magically transmit this apostolic power. That's what they hold and that's what they teach. Um, So if that's the case, and the Pope speaks, uh, you know, from an ex-cathedra, from the chair of Peter himself, uh, in his official capacity without error, then the prophetic ministry of Jesus did not come to a close. Divine revelation did not end with the ministry of Jesus. Does that make sense? By the way, um, can we talk about apostolic succession? This might be a good place to do it. Do we believe in the doctrine of apostolic succession in a way? Yes. I had a privilege some, um, I guess it was 20, 22 years ago. Uh, it was January of 2001. There was an international conference um, theologians and so on gathering to go talk about uh, the Nicene Creed and we were all trying to different different denominations different churches from all around the world and uh, I was selected to be a representative for the conservative Presbyterian churches reformed churches so they got all hung up you know on the apostolic succession basically saying uh, those crazy Baptists and and uh, they don't even consider Presbyterian when they say Presbyterian they only think of the mainline liberal Presbyterians who were uh, somewhere there in that conference, but they don't even think of us. We're so small, so they just kind of, for them the crazy evangelicals are all the Baptists and non-denominationals and all. And they're like, oh, they don't believe in apostolic succession. How are we going to get past that? So I raised my hand and I said, we do. Reformed do and have. And I say reformed because let's face it, Baptists and all that ultimately they're the evolutions, they're deformations out of reformed. But that's a story for another day. So I did say we do believe in an apostolic succession. But let me read that to you. Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, and you will see very clearly what that is meant to be. And then you tell me afterwards whether the idea that a man continues to speak infallibly 
can stand after you've read what it says here. So 2 Timothy, let's look at verses 13 through 14. Here Paul says, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So much in that verse. What you heard from me, the apostle. There's a pattern there of solid, sound teaching. Right? You've heard it. I, was, I gave it to you with faith and love in Christ Jesus. You're to guard it. He calls it the good deposit. It's been entrusted to you. That's the very language he used. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. It's been passed on to you, Timothy. There's the idea of the apostles leaving the scene, passing it on to a pastor who is not an apostle and saying this is the way ministry will continue on. You're to guard it. See, that's my role as an elder is to guard that good deposit. That's part of the, well, it's half of the job is to guard it and make sure that it's not messed with. Now to jump down to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the things you have heard me say, now he's just, stop right there, the things you have heard me say, he just finished saying, those things you've heard me say, we're talking about the same thing. In 13 and 14, he says, those things you've heard me say, that good deposit, you're to guard it, it's been entrusted to you. Now he says, the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. I'm passing this on to you. I'm entrusting it to you. You find reliable men and you entrust it to them. And they go doing that every generation and every generation and now it's come to this generation. That's the true apostolic succession. It's the word of God that's being passed on reliably. Yes, elder's job is to guard it, to pass it on and to teach it and so on. But you you see the point there. It's not that the men themselves magically have the ability to being apostles now speak. It's that they are faithfully holding on to the word that's been given to them. And if we doubt that, we can jump down one more, this time to 2 Timothy 2.15. And he tells them, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Your job as that Workman, you're not a superstar. Notice he doesn't sit there and say, as the king who sits on his throne and speaks ex cathedra, as the, you know, I'm, I'm the bishop of this cathedral, hear me speak. No, you're just a workman. Your job is to go out there and just do, you know, what you're called to do, preach and teach and counsel and then go home and shut up, that kind of thing. That's essentially, you know, what he's being told here. You're a workman, but you don't need to be ashamed of that, even if you're an everyday kind of guy. You should be satisfied with not being The celebrity. The celebrity is? Sunday school answer. Jesus. See how this speaks to a lot of the pastors today who step up on stage? The celebrity is Jesus. You're just the workman. But you don't need to be ashamed of that. Your job is to rightly handle the word of truth. That is your job. It's not to come up with new word of truth. It's not to speak anything new. It's to take that, understand it, guard it against all the errors, pass it on to other reliable men, and that continues. That's the true apostolic succession. Does that make sense? Important stuff. Okay. Roman Catholicism, we can talk about Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, on and on and on. 
they all, our, our Muslim neighbors next door, they all add something and say, you need the Bible, plus you also need the Book of Mormon or you need, you know, uh, the Quran or you need, you know, the, the prophetic sayings of Mary Ellen Smith, uh, uh, Mary Ellen White, rather, uh, Joseph Smith, Mary Ellen White, you know, Christian science, etc., and so on. That's, that's how you can tell. If they can't sit there and say this is necessary and sufficient, then right from the get-go, you already know they're on false ground. And by the way, that then speaks to the Pentecostal movement today, which does not claim to have another book, but claims to have new revelation today. And that's a rather condemnatory thing to say, but I'm letting the scripture speak. So, um, yeah. They were, uh, no, uh, everything he said and did, uh, everything was revelatory, but not everything was necessarily something that God thought was needed for further generations. So, for example, we know that even the Old Testament prophets said more under the inspiration of the Scripture than what we have in Scripture rated, because some things were meant only for that moment and were not necessary, uh, you know, to continue on. I suspect the same thing might also be said, and it's speculation. Uh, we know Paul wrote more than what we have, and they're not the, the, they're the lost letters of Scripture and all that. All, when you hear about, you know, Clement and the, the Gnostic uh, Gospel of Jude, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about legitimate stuff that Paul wrote. And some people say, well, those letters were not inspired. They might have been, but they may also have had uh, no further utility beyond that moment. So the same thing would be, you know, about Jesus. When God moves through the Spirit, because, you know, Peter tells us in, uh, first, in 2 Peter 1, 11, that he moves these men to write what God wanted them to write through the Spirit of Christ. So when Mar- Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write what they do, looking back in the ministry of Jesus, everything they selected was precisely what God said we today need to hear and, and all following generations. Um, and John just gives us the insight that there, there could have been much more. But the one who selects was God. So it doesn't mean that that other that was not revelatory. It just simply means that God judged that it was not necessary for us, uh, for, you know, for what we need to know for faith, life, and salvation. Yeah, good question. Anything else before we move on? Yeah, there's a lot in this little question that really has to do with the fundamental importance of Scripture. Um, let's take a moment then and say, so what does it mean if Christ is the one who speaks and he is the final revelation, the final prophet, and everything is put in Scripture, does that then mean that there's no place for what we're doing now, for having men who are ordained to teach? And of course the answer is no. Uh, you can take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Let's have somebody do that. Read, uh, somebody can read Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. If you've got it, would you go in and please read it? Yeah, you know, might as well read that little section. Sorry I didn't tell you that, but yeah, that'll continue the thought. Okay, yeah, we, yeah we'll just hold off. Because that's one of Paul's run-on sentences. It goes on and on and on. So we'll, we'll hold off there. Um, but what it tells us is, you know, and it uses 
this language of he was up in heaven ascended is the one who descended, but how can you descend unless you're the one, you know. What he's basically saying is Jesus, in his earthly ministry, did his thing, but in ascending, he did not abandon the church, but he empowered certain men, and he talks about the prophets and the apostles, and so on. He gives them, you know, the, <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the continuing ministry of word, but it doesn't stop with them. It goes on to talk about evangelists and teaching pastors, you know, pastors who teach, uh, which is why we refer to them as teaching elders, um, that kind of thing. Uh, so, and, and it talks about them being a permanent gift to the church. So post the apostolic era, the ministry of the word would continue through men who are faithfully expounding this word. There's no new revelation that they're bringing. What they're bringing is the continuing, uh, not the continuing, but what they continue is teaching and, and working out of, out of here. So that's an important thing. You know, we already looked at the Second, second Timothy 2.15 one that says that our job is to rightly understand, rightly divide, rightly uh, grab a hold of the word of truth. So there is a role for teachers there is a place for that. Jesus has given uh, the role of teacher as a gift to the church. But the important thing is that they are pointing to the scripture, what they teach is out of the scripture, and that they have confidence in the scripture. Now, that's a, a point that I want to just expound a little bit because in the medieval era, you were being told that you could not understand scripture unless you had the experts teaching. Right, And that continues today in the Roman church. That's the idea that you can't really understand the Bible unless your priest explains it to you and, and so on. American Roman Catholics are better. They've been much more affected by Protestantism than, uh, than, uh, and, and some other Western countries than, um, let's say, in Latin America, where it's still the average person, if they have a Bible in the home, it's like a, like a, like a fetish. You know, it's not something that's actually read and studied and so on. To, to their credit, American Catholics uh, and some European Catholics that even bother going to church uh, do actually do try to read and so on. But there's still in the whole Roman church this idea that you in the end must submit to the teaching of the church over and against anything that you discover on your own. There's this thing called the magisterium. It's literally uh, the, the group of guys that are put together and they give you the, in, the official interpretation that's not what we're arguing here when we look at what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter four. The idea that teachers come is to assist you and to come alongside you, but in the end, the spirit of Christ is working even in you so that you're able to pick up the Bible and to understand it and to read it. The fact that a teacher assists you doesn't take away from that. It adds to it. Do you see how that works? It doesn't replace it. That's why we spent so much time in this church trying to teach you the scriptures so that you can become just as, as, as you know, uh, facile is the word I'm looking for. I'm thinking of a better word, but if you guys understand where that's coming from, that you become just as uh, uh, familiar and just as um, uh, competent. I was trying to avoid using that word because uh, it implies that you're incompetent otherwise, but... Um, but that you become just as competent and facile in your use of scripture as an elder. It's not, you can't understand it, listen to me speak. Do you see the distinction? Because the spirit of Christ is still at work in you just like he is in every believer. Again, we see that sneaking back into the Protestant church. 
you have on one side in the evangelical world this idea of, again, apostles and prophets coming back, and it brings that kind of silliness with it. On the liberal side, um, when you hear, I'll give you a perfect example of how that's happening today. Maybe not in this, like, like always, the errors don't, they're always the same at the core, but the outward manifestation is different. So you, gotta, you might be fooled and not realize it's the same thing. When you read Genesis 1, the creation account, right? Can you read it? You pretty much can understand what it says. You might have a lot of questions. You know, how did this happen? How did... And then here comes the liberal pastor, and he tells you, it doesn't really say what it says. You can't really understand. You don't understand science. You don't really understand uh, that the, the, what's being used here is metaphorical language that uh, you, you wouldn't have picked up just by reading it. But, but we know, because we know Hebrew in ways that you don't. And we know science in ways that you don't. How many of you have heard that about Genesis 1? They're essentially telling you the same thing the Roman church said, which is, you're too stupid. You cannot understand it without us. But the proper view is, yes, you can understand it. That you don't is because you haven't studied it sufficiently. We're here coming alongside as your teachers and as your elders to equip you so that you do understand it. Now, do we recognize that people have different levels of understanding and not everybody's going to, you know, yes, of course. But the point is, you can all have, at the very least, a true basic grasp of what Scripture teaches. And for most of us, beyond the basics, you know, we can, we can, we can take some deep dives into different areas. You are fully capable of that under the Spirit. My role is to just teach you how to do that. It's not to replace that work. Does that make sense? Very, very important how we view the role of ministry, the role of pastors, our role. It calls us to a much more active ministry. We're not just sitting back and letting the pastors do ministry. You're the ones. And in fact, uh, as Connor, if, he would, if we were teaching on that passage, Connor would have kept reading, it tells us the pastor's role is to equip you to do the work of ministry. It's an amazing passage that sometimes gets passed over. You are being equipped to do the work of ministry. Ah. Okay, let me hit a few more things and then we'll uh, start wrapping it up. One of the things that Peter says, he says, uh, I'm just going to read it for time. In 2 Peter 1 16 through 21 the key verses verse 19 2 Peter 1 16 through 21 he's talking about how the apostles brought the word he says for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father he's talking about the uh, transfiguration on the mountain and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And now look at this next verse, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot there just in that verse about the inspiration of the Spirit who carries us along. And those men wrote exactly what God intended. But the verse that I wanted you to see here this time was verse 19. Because he says that with us having this here, 
we have the word in a way superior to anything that happened before. And what, Paul, what Peter is saying is, we saw it with our own eyes. And yet you ultimately have that prophetic word confirmed and it's a better thing because you have it in final form. If you're struggling a little bit with that, do you remember where Jesus said, uh, again, for time, I'll just rush, but in Matthew 11, 11, he's talking about John the Baptist, and he says, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater one than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. How can a person on this side of the coming of scripture be greater than John the Baptist who he says was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets it's because even he was still looking forward even John was asking are you the one and we're sitting there and saying at the very least person says yeah we know that he's the one we know something that even John the Baptist didn't know so you should never sit there and say oh I wish I was there I wish I was there and I could see and I could what Jesus what Peter is telling us you have you're much more privileged than all those who came before. Even, even John the Baptist who was right there. Because you have it fully confirmed. The Spirit has said to you, this is true. It's necessary and it's sufficient for you. Um, if we had time, I would unpack all sorts of things. Because one of the questions I always hear is, how do I know what the will of God is for my life? Who am I supposed to marry? What school should I go to? What are you saying here that tells me to go to UNT or it tells me to go to University of Iowa? No, but it tells you what you need to know to make those right decisions. Okay? Do I marry this guy? Do I marry this girl? Or do I marry this one? I don't know which one to marry. God, speak to me. And then we go to you know, a church that says, well, I'll have a word of, you know, of knowledge will come to me. You're to marry George and not Fred. Okay, what does the scripture say? That you're to marry believers. Fred's not a believer, George is a believer. Boom, there's your answer. Wait a minute, George is a believer, Fred's a believer, now what do I do? Well, Fred and George, you can weigh other scriptural things. Fred's a Baptist, George gets infant baptism. And no, no, I mean, you, this is serious stuff. And we're going to sit there and argue about what we're going to do with baptizing our children? Okay, you marry the one who you're not going to argue with. I'm just give, giving you one example, right? They're both exactly the same. Then you know what Scripture says? Like Martin Luther said, love God and do as you please. If you love God, which means you obey him, after that, it's all indifferent. Fred and George, exactly the same. They're both the same in every regard. Then pick the one you like better. I like George's eyes better than Fred's. Off I go and marry Fred or George or whoever. You see the point? Everything you need right here. Sufficient. Okay, uh, so we can end that by just saying, um, yeah, and by the way, you've heard me say this before, so we won't get into this. Catechisms, all that stuff, they're not inspired. Confessions, they're not inspired. They're simply summaries. They're, they're teachers, just like I'm a teacher or Calvin was a much better teacher, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they're only good insofar as they um, point us to Scripture. But I think we'll end there. Um, 
Yeah, I think we'll end there. Uh, you are able through the work of the Holy Spirit because, he, because Jesus continues in his office even now as prophet. He is, through his spirit, revealing God's word to you through the, through the Bible. Does he use teachers and pastors? Yes, absolutely. But in the end, it is the continuing work of Christ even now as he's in, ascended into heaven. That's what we're seeing. Does that make sense? Okay, uh, there's actually more we could have said, but we are definitely out of time. Any questions, comments, concerns? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, we can have fruition of you. We can understand you. We can know you. We know that through the intercession of the Spirit, we can speak to you. Uh, otherwise, Father, we really would be just empty, uh, uh, like uh, people walking around in the dark uh, with their hands out, just trying to figure out our way. Thank you that we have the light of the scripture. Um, how very important. We pray, Father, for the, uh, that work in our own hearts so that we can continue with confidence going to scripture, knowing that as you say in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, that these things are meant for us to know and to understand because the spirit equips us. Thank you for those whom you've given to us as pastors and teachers who are able to teach and to equip. Um, we're thankful, Father, that that happens through ordained ministry. Uh, with uh, with uh, those men who are ruling elders, but we also know in many places, like when uh, uh, Paul talks about the role of faithful women in teaching other women, uh, the role of faithful pa- uh, parents teaching their children, and this uh, this happens in so many ways. But we pray, Lord, that we would all be true to um, to this idea of having this 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 sound deposit given to us that we would guard and that we would recognize is precious, and that we see that our job is to both protect it. Uh, from uh, from those who would add to it or subtract to it, but also then to teach it faithfully. Help us, Father, to uh, both do that and to profit from those who do it for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.